Hello there, this is Future Forecast and I'm your host, Daniel Trainer. Today we're going to talk about some of the new technology happening right now in consumer electronics, transportation, energy and possible future innovations. Broadcasting every weekday on KUIK 1360 AM as well as weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM. If you want to listen to episodes in your own time, be sure to check out the playback on SoundCloud by searching Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer. But without further ado, let's buckle up and find out what's this week's Future Forecast. You know, with all the technology advancements, it's kind of hard sometimes for regulations to keep up. And that's why we're starting to see companies that are actually developing some of the artificial intelligence or implantable technology. They're genuinely asking to be regulated. And one of those people is Elon Musk. And he's calling for regulation on organizations developing this advanced artificial intelligence. Now, as we know, he's got Tesla, SpaceX. This includes his companies. Uh, there was a tweet earlier uh, this week, and it was from SpaceX and Tesla, and they say all orgs developing advanced AI should be regulated, including Tesla. From what it looks like, he was responding to a new MIT technology review profile of OpenAI. And at the time of its founding, the whole point of this group was essentially arriving at the idea of OpenAI as an alternative to sitting on the sidelines or, quote, encouraging the regulatory oversight. Now, since 2015, Elon's kind of distanced himself from OpenAI and he's openly criticized it. In a Twitter conversation about the group last year, he was tweeting, unfortunately, I must agree that these are reasonable concerns when a user asked, what is OpenAI? I don't even know anymore. Is it a non-for-profit that leveraged goodwill while silently giving out equity for years, prepping a shift to a for-profit that is now seeking to license closed tech through a third party by segmenting tech under a banner of pre slash post AGI technology. So as you can probably tell, it's very confusing uh, what this whole open AI has really been, but Musk has long raised the red flag about AI and robots, and he's been doing this for many years now. I mean, he's told the National Governors Association back in 2017 that the thing that is most dangerous and that's the hardest to get your arms around is not the physical thing. It's the deep intelligence in the AI network. You say, what harm can a deep intelligence in the networks do? Well, it could start war, doing fake news and spoofing email accounts, and doing fake press releases and manipulate information. And I think Elon really nailed it on the tee because every day that we go into the 2020s, we're getting technology improvements, especially with things like deep fakes, more and more advanced robotics. I mean, just look at Boston Dynamics. They've got these two-legged Atlas robots and they just they can go literally jumping around from blocks to blocks. Some things that humans can't even do. It's getting a little bit scary. And that's why it's really, really critical that we have the industry industry leaders get behind putting regulation in place because it might get to a point where it's just too late. 
So hopefully things work out and we're not going to be taken over by AI. Now, talking about something a little different, holograms. Now, eight years after, you know, Tupac, uh, they had this hologram and it appeared at Coachella, which was a big music festival. Uh, it was alongside Snoop Dogg and, the, you know, the hologram kind of looked pretty cool. But just recently, Whitney Houston's family have commissioned a hologram of the singer to go on a tour around the UK and Europe this year. But the fans were less than positive about this Whitney Houston hologram, with some people labeling it as sad and disturbing, while others labeled the whole thing as a, quote, mess. Now, the tour is called An Evening with Whitney, and the Whitney Houston hologram tour, and it's been created with Pat Houston, who's Whitney's sister-in-law, and she told the media that it's the right time for this thing to happen. She said this is something that she wanted to do and she was getting very emotional watching this because it's just so close to what she wanted that the only thing missing is her physically. And when you go looking at the hologram, it's quite interesting how they use it. They use glass and projectors and usually the effects look pretty good. Uh, but some fans got a preview of the Whitney Houston hologram on a TV show called This Morning and it was a little less than positive, kind of the, the audience reception about this new technology with some people feeling that the whole idea was not respectful at all. Now, again, like I said, sometimes it's done very well, sometimes it can be done not so great. Uh, there were some positive reactions though for the hologram from fans. Some people were saying, personally, I don't see what all the fuss with the hologram was about. It looked fine. If you have a look on YouTube, you can see for it yourself. I think you'll see what I kind of saw as well, which is something's a bit off. I don't know what it is with the mouth or the eyes, but it just doesn't look 100%. Now, this could be easily remedied if they used a deep fake on kind of what they've put together. Probably would look pretty good. But I think this goes to a deeper point. We've already got artificial intelligence working with voice synthesizers, and you've also got the deepfake voice technology where you can totally create a song without a human. And nostalgia definitely sells things. So if you've got a music label that owns the rights to possibly the music, you might see a weird legal battle where people are now going to debate, well, who owns the person's voice, right? Obviously, if the person's not alive anymore, who owns the voice, the rights to the voice, making new music? That's going to be an interesting point, and we'll probably see it more commonly going into the later 2020s. Now, if you thought that was crazy enough, now how about this? A robot conducting humans in an orchestra. It's pretty crazy, but uh, there was a conductor on the podium, had no baton, had no tail coat, no musical score. All we had was an android called Alter 3 guiding symphony orchestra's players through their paces. Now, the robot has a humanoid face, and it's got hands and lower arms, which gesticulate what could pass for passion as it bounces up and down and rotates, you know, through the live performance. And this was at the Kichiro Subuya's Opera of Scary Beauty in the Emirates of Shahara. For Shibuya, who's the composer from Japan, the role of robotics in our everyday lives may well be increasing, but it's up to us to decide how artificial intelligence might add to the human experience. 
and robots and androids create kind of art together sometimes. He said, This work is a metaphor for the relations between humans and technology. Sometimes the android will get crazy, the human orchestras will have to follow, but sometimes humans can cooperate very comfortably. So he wrote the music, but the android actually controls the tempo and the volume of the whole live show and even sing sometimes, which was kind of creepy, but the premise is that the android itself is moving according to its own will. Uh, he said that the robots and AI that exist now are not all complete. The focus of my interest is what happens when this incomplete technology comes together with art, which is kind of an interesting concept, you have to give it to him. But for some of those that witnessed it, the performance, a bit like that Whitney Houston hologram, drew a very mixed response. Someone said, I think it's a very exciting idea. We came to see how it looks and how much is possible. Which kind of sounds like they wanted to see how the technology worked, but they weren't too impressed. Uh, there was a second audience member that says, You just know, a human conductor is so much better. The human touch is just lost. And I think that gets to the main point, you know, with some music genres, I think this type of thing works, okay? But with classical and you've got orchestra, this just doesn't quite work. But I think we're gonna see maybe new music genres pop up because of technology like this. So it'll be really interesting to see or hear what it's gonna sound like. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer and have a listen. It's that easy. This show is broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. So getting into transportation, we have a pretty historical thing that just happened. For the first time, a General Motors EV1 sold. This happened on February 22nd, 2020, and it sold on a GovDeals auction site, which is a liquidation for you know universities and that kind of stuff. It sold for $21,511. Not as much as you would expect, and I'm going to go through why it sold for that. Now, this was for the body, and people would look and say, okay, there's not much of the car there, but it actually had a lot of parts. It had enough parts to actually rebuild it easily. Now, it was offered for auction from the University of Cincinnati that had two EV1s. This was their parts car, which, as you can see, if you have a look at the photos, Google it, it's kind of a cut-up original chassis, but it could be put together pretty easily. There was no VIN number anywhere on the vehicle, according to the surplus team at the university. However, it was donated from department to department over the years and didn't seem to have the original donation contract, which all the EV1s had. Now, hopefully, like I said, this puts to rest the common misconception that these cars are worth, you know, 500 or half a million or more, because this auction received the same media attention that the $500,000 articles got, and it didn't seem to rocket in price. The real truth of the matter is that these EV1s realistically are worth less than 100,000, and that's really in immaculate restored condition. 
this auction was just another example of that. Now, the media attention, if we think back to 2013, there was this hype value. Jalopnik had an article and they said, look, there's a half a million dollar car and it's just sitting in the university waiting for somebody to save it. Well, that obviously, 2020, didn't really happen. The car is worth a lot less than that. Uh, now, the winning bidder is going to be adding this to their private collection as a second EV1. Yes, they have two EV1s in private ownership. And from what we know, uh, they've almost completed restoring one of their EV1s, and this is going to be a second project car for them, which is really cool. Parts for these cars usually pop up here and there, and you sometimes see them on eBay, like a couple of years ago there was some headlights they sold for a couple, like $200, you had a hood sold for like 100 and something. The parts don't usually go for very much, because the car isn't worth very much. A lot of people think it's worth millions. But, I mean, if you do have parts, there is specifically an EV1 community, and you can get in contact with them at www.gmev1.com. And that's gmev and then number one.com. So that's where you can kind of find out where the Survivor EV1s are. You can go and check out the museum. And there's a Reddit. So they're pretty much everywhere. It's r slash GMEV1. But let's talk about a new EV, the one and only 500E. And it's on the way. Now, we've already kind of caught, there was the revamped 500E testing. There was a couple of times where they were wearing heavy camouflage, which just, I don't know why they would do that. It looks exactly the same as the old 500E. Uh, but the prototype in the latest spy photos has been covered up, but it appears that Fiat is very keen to get the most out of the small EV in all weather conditions. This time, it was spotted in the snowy regions of northern Sweden. Now, Fiat Chrysler Automobiles, they announced that they've got their new platform, and that was back in 2018, which is kind of new for a whole platform two years ago. That's very new and it's destined to underpin several different models within the FCA umbrella, but the 500 is going to be the first vehicle to use it. Now, funny thing with the 500E, because I've driven one, traction control doesn't really exist in a 500E, which is totally different to a Tesla, and you can turn it completely off, which already it's non-existent, and you would expect, oh, this is going to be terrible in the snow. Now, I've driven this thing in very deep snow, like a foot deep, it's surprisingly good. Now, it might be because it's front-wheel drive, but if they're really now testing to see it in Sweden how it's going to work, and it's already the previous model was pretty awesome, this one's going to be really good. Now, the new 500E's mission uh, states that it's going to be an urban commuter car, but the range now we're starting to hear it's not going to be below 150. It's going to be between 150 and 200 miles. And that's really going to help, especially with sales. Now, the 500E should actually return to the US, which is really good news, and that's going to be in 2021, so right around the corner. For the final production specs, we're just going to have to wait and see just a few more weeks for the 2020 Geneva Motor Show. So compared to Tesla, which is the top dog, really the only electric car that's been somewhat comparable is the 500E. 
and it's not because of the range, it kind of sucks, it's got slow charging level 2, but it was so over-engineered. This whole car was engineered by Bosch. It's definitely not a typical fix-it-again Tony, or a, you know, short for Fiat, you know, because they always break. But this is a electric car, and everybody I've talked to, they've said kind of more reliable than a Tesla Model 3 because there's less components. Now, a Model 3 is a lot better, but these 500Es hardly ever go into the service shop. And if you get them on the used market, two years of fuel savings pretty much pays for the whole car. So you get a free electric car after two years. And if all this talk is starting to make you think, hmm, maybe this electric thing, maybe I might get one. Because really, if you're getting a free car after two years, effectively, that's pretty cool. Now, there's kind of things that you should know about an EV. Now, the University of Michigan lays out the best ways to keep your EV's battery pack, which is the expensive component, happy and healthy for the longest amount of time possible. So, there's a couple of things that you need to know. Always plug your car in when it's extremely hot or cold. Now, with a 500E or a Tesla, they have a battery cooling and heating system, so that keeps the cells at the right temperature. If they're the wrong temperature, they start to die. Now, avoid driving it in extreme hot or cold temperatures. You can, it's just your range is gonna kinda suck. Uh, if you get something like a Nissan Leaf, it will damage the battery pack because the battery management system isn't up to the same standard as the Fiat or the Teslas. Don't expose your car to extreme low temperatures, so like negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit for extended periods of time. And turn off your car before the battery charges kind of goes to zero. So don't leave your car with a really low voltage or a battery because if it sits uncharged for an extended period of time, even if the car isn't on, the battery will degrade on its own if it's not charged. And lastly, and this is where it comes to second-hand electric cars and how long are they going to last into the future. Some cars say to minimize the use of fast charging, and that includes Tesla. Some cars cannot fast charge, and that's why you'll see their batteries are usually 95 or more percent of the original capacity, like a little Fiat 500. So definitely, it's a good thing to know if you're wanting to get an EV. Enjoying the show? Well, just remember you can listen to them on SoundCloud anytime you want. Just search for Future Forecast with Daniel Trainer and have a listen. It's that easy. This show is broadcast weekly on X-Ray 91.1 FM and every day of the working week on KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and join live. In space, the search for present-day life on Mars is heating up, and there's a good reason. We have an improved knowledge of Mars' geological diversity and history, better appreciation of life in extreme environments here on Earth, and a sharp focus on the sensitive life detection measurement methods, which are all bolstering up the Mars life hunt, giving scientists more reason to think that 
they might just find something. Now, astrobiologists and other experts have been tackling these issues for, you know, since last November during the conference at the National Cave and Karst Research Institute in Carlsbad, New Mexico. On the meeting agenda was a discussion of how to best test the extent of life on Mars, with or without the benefit of collection systems. Such systems include complex and pretty pricey sample return efforts that officially kick off this summer with the launch of NASA's Mars 2020 rover, which we all know about. And while the cold, dry surface of Mars, with its harsh radiation environments, is widely considered to be uninhabitable, the subsurface has been hypothesized to be viable, uh, long-lived habitable environments, protected by the punishing surface conditions of Mars. So, you know, there could even be a place where water could be stable underground. Over the years, researchers have spotted pit craters on the surface of Mars. So these features, uh, you know, where the roof of a lava tube has partially collapsed, creates a skylight, which is kind of cool. And researchers at the meeting pointed out that Mars circling spacecraft have imaged numerous potential cave entrances. Shielded underground as they are, could lava tubes be prime microbial real estate for Mars? Well, we don't know. We've got to find this out. Now, Penny Boston, who's a senior advisor for the science integration at NASA's Ames Research Center, said, quote, It's pretty clear to me that there's much to be done to seek extinct life, and certainly extinct life in a variety of environments all over Mars. Now, as an astrobiologist, Boston has been a cave diver for some 25 years. Now, she said that, I think we all recognize that there's not just a single way to go for the search for life. Now, she mentioned that I think people are often very leery of the idea because they may think of caves as mines, and mines are dangerous because we've recently made those mines and they're all shored up by human structure. But in the case of natural caves that have been, you know, geologically over long periods of time, like they've been able to stabilize, it's more likely that a cathedral is going to collapse than a natural cave. And that's very true. There are some exceptions to this, obviously. Caves in a pretty seismic activity area, they're going to be more unstable, so you would obviously be more leery around them. Now, either way you look at this, we're going to be getting answers very soon, and this is all going to be with the launching of humans to Mars for the early 2020s. Now, talking about launching humans, Starship. Now, Elon's been sharing quite a number of updates about the progress of Starship this week, along with footage of the assembly process of the current SN1 prototype of Starship. Now, he explained on Twitter that some of the other considerations and strategies that the company is working with as it works on its new spacecraft is going to be to try and fly it this year. Now, he said that SpaceX is iterating at a much faster pace with Starship than recently with the Falcon. Now, the Falcon rockets, the design was more or less stabilized once it started working constantly, which is all those tests. He noted that the ability to progress with the design toward having it into a production vehicle is dependent on the number of interactions of the prototypes of the spacecraft multiplied by the progress achieved between each version. And that's been the way that SpaceX has worked all the way through in the past. And one of the key reasons that it's been able to upend the whole traditional rocket launch industry. It moves fast, iterating as it goes, and makes changes based on failures very quickly. 
whereas the industry has largely been focused on more stop-start development cycles where things are mostly fixed and there's a brief period of intense focus on improvements between long-lived vehicle generations, but SpaceX is going to need to increase the rate at which it's building because testing and flying these prototypes if it aims to make that 2020 orbital flight, but they've made pretty good progress. They've been hiring and helping speed up production and earlier this year Elon sent out a call for job applicants to staff up additional production shifts for round-the-clock operations. And SpaceX, as we know, just a little while ago hosted a job fair for interested applicants at its Texas site, Boca Chica, Texas, so they're pretty much on track to making sure that Starship meets the deadlines. And talking about production, rockets, and meeting deadlines, Blue Origin has opened a factory. Not just any factory, they've opened a Lunar Lander engine manufacturing facility in Huntsville, Alabama. Hmm, that kind of sounds familiar, right? That's because Huntsville, Alabama is known as Rocket City. That's where NASA did all of their development. So interesting to see that they're choosing the same place. Now, in addition to the BE-7 engines that are going to be used on that lunar lander, the facility is also going to produce the BE-4 and BE-3U engines, all of which can go on and be used and tested at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center, which is in Huntsville, Alabama. Now, Blue Origin, they're excited by how this new facility and all the new testing will advance their spaceflight capabilities. And the CEO, Bob Smith, said, quote, at the core of every successful launch vehicle program, there are the engines that power those vehicles to space. It's an exciting time for Blue and our partners in the country. You know, we're on the path to deliver on our promise to end the reliance on Russian-made engines. Now, the test facility already has some capabilities to create space-like environments for testing. And the test site, which is 1-42 at Edwards Air Force Base, can already test small engines in a space-like vacuum environment, so it's pretty convenient. And the major facility modifications are being funded by Blue Origin, and this is to add liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen propellant capabilities. Through the testing, you know, with this BE-7, the whole purpose is to kind of test these upgrades the newly improved facility is also going to be used for testing other pieces of hardware and engines. So some pieces that will be tested at the facility will be not the engines, probably meaning bits of the lunar lander that they're putting together. So pretty cool to see the whole kit, the whole factory has been completed, and it's all in conjunction with SpaceX as well, so a bit of competition now starting to boil up. And going into competition, now space tourism, as we know, it's going to be a big business of the future. and you've got Virgin Galactic and they went public and that's what they do. I think it's 250,000 you can go on a flight uh, up into the, the edge of space and then you come back down to Earth. But there are other space tourism companies and we know Blue Origin, SpaceX, Boeing, they're all doing that kind of a thing. But SpaceX has got a little bit of news. Uh, they're partnering with a space tourism company called Space Adventures to send those of us that you know, we're not astronauts. They're going to be able to send these people up to the edge of space, maybe even a little higher than what Virgin Galactic can do all the way back. Now, Eric Anderson, who's the chairman of Space Adventures, said, quote, 
creating unique and previously impossible opportunities for private citizens to experience space is why Space Adventures exists. So these guys, they were obviously impressed by the reusable SpaceX Crew Dragon pulling off its first demo mission to the International Space Station last year and successfully testing out its launch escape system more recently. Now, SpaceX and Space Adventures, there's a lot of space in these company names, have agreed to join forces to give four private citizens a view of Earth that no one has ever seen since NASA's Gemini program, which was the prelude to the Apollo missions. This is going to be the first time tourists orbit Earth in a mission that's powered entirely by American technology. Now, Gwen Shotwell, who's the SpaceX president, CEO, said that, quote, this is a historic mission that will forge a path to making spaceflight possible for all people who can dream it. We're pleased to work with Space Adventures team on the mission. And I think this is a little bit of a stretch, you know, all people that can dream about it, because the tickets, they're not going to be cheap. Uh, there's no price tag right now, but they're going to be close to Virgin Galactics. So Space Adventures and SpaceX are going to need to find four people brave enough, and obviously that have enough money, to do the first flight. But either way you look at it, it's probably going to be a pretty historical moment with the first private citizens going up to that kind of an altitude, you know, into orbit. That's going to be pretty cool. Now, talking about something a little different, Jupiter. Newly released data from NASA's Juno probe shows that water may make up about 0.25% of molecules in the atmosphere over Jupiter's equator. And obviously, while that doesn't kind of sound like much, the calculation is based on the prevalence of water components. You know, you've got hydrogen and oxygen, three times more than at the sun. The new measurements Juno obtained are much higher than previous missions suggested. Which, you know, the surprise result has scientists looking into results from NASA's Galileo mission to Jupiter, which obtained drier results in 1995 when engineers deliberately threw the spacecraft into Jupiter's atmosphere. Reconciling the result from Galileo and Juno is key for scientists to better understand how our solar system came together. Now, since Jupiter was probably the first planet to form, it could have just sucked up most of the gas and dust that the Sun's formation left behind. And how much water Jupiter soaked up? Well, you know, this is the big question. This should help scientists identify the most plausible theories to explain this kind of formation. Now, understanding Jupiter's birth would in turn help scientists understand how the planet's wind currents move and what's inside, you know, what's what their insides are made of. So scientists should be able to generalize findings at Jupiter to certain kinds of large exoplanets to learn how other solar systems are formed. And Galileo's results, they were obviously a puzzle back then in the 90s, and the spacecraft sent back data showing 10 times less water than scientists had predicted. And more weirdly, the amount of water appeared to increase the deeper Galileo went into Jupiter's atmosphere, and that was all according to NASA. Now, scientists had expected that by the time that it stopped transmitting data at depths of about 75 miles, the atmosphere around it should have been, you know, well mixed with an unchanging composition. But a ground-based infrared telescope was able to measure the water concentrations at Jupiter at the same time Galileo plunged, and it showed that Galileo may have accidentally hit a dry spot, meaning that water was not well mixed deep in Jupiter's atmosphere. 
So Scott Bolton, who is the Juno Principal Investigator at Southwest Research Institute, said, when we think that we have things figured out, Jupiter reminds us of how much we still have to learn. Juno's surprise discovery that the atmosphere was not well mixed, even well below the cloud tops, it's a puzzle that we're trying to still figure out. No one would have guessed that water might be so variable across the planet. And just talking about that, just for the last thing, it kind of reminded me of this story I read. Now, a record has seemed to have been made for an orbit. Now, there's a gas giant called NGTS-10b, and it's zooming around its own little star so closely it completes an entire orbit in just 18.4 hours. So that's like insane. Now it's nearly as close as a planet can kind of get to a host star without starting to be ripped apart by gravitational forces. Astronomers say that the exoplanet is spiraling in towards the star and it will cross that ripping apart point called the Roche limit in just about 38 million years, which is still quite a while, but it's pretty clear that the planet's pretty doomed. Now this is what you call a hot Jupiter which, as the name kind of suggests, it's a gas giant like Jupiter, but unlike Jupiter, they orbit very close to their host stars, with orbit periods of less than 10 days, and that's what makes them hot. So you can see why 18.4 hours is really close. So one of the 4,000 confirmed exoplanets discovered to date, you know, up to 337 could be hot Jupiters. Though it's kind of thought that they're formed farther out from their planetary systems and then they migrate inwards towards the star. But we don't know much about the mysterious births, but hot Jupiters are particularly close to their stars and they can tell us a lot about the star's planet tidal interactions. So with this continued observation, it could reveal the new exoplanet's orbital decay. The team predicts that the orbit will shorten by 7 seconds over the next 10 years. If astronomers can obtain precise enough measurements of the system, they might actually be able to see it happening with their own eyes. And that would be one priceless sight. Well, it looks like that's all we have time for today, but remember you can always listen back to these whenever you want. Just search for Future Forecasts with Daniel Trainer on SoundCloud. This show's broadcast through X-Ray 91.1 FM and KUIK 1360 AM. So be sure to tune in and listen live. Remember, all of what we just covered is happening right now. This isn't science fiction anymore. It's actually reality, especially going into the 2020s and beyond. 